You're listening to a Centro Church podcast. Since the last time I saw you, Australians have, in full disclosure, knowingly elected a Christian Prime Minister. And, and, not, and not just any old garden variety Christian, a, a, a Holy Ghost man, a happy clapper like ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, these fist pumps down the back. I love it. Yeah. But um, one of the things that happened with this election, and it, it's, it's not what normally happens, is that the pre-election street fighting is still going on. Every, there, is, there is arguments and sledging happening on Twitter, and people are upset. They are angry. And the bun fight continues. And this is almost a mirror image of what happened in America about 18 months ago when, when President Trump was elected. The slanging match still, is still going on over there in America. I follow a guy on Facebook. I have a, have a friend on Facebook who lives in California. He's a mountain biker. He was a, a, like a family man, an athlete. He was a mild-mannered sort of a guy, posted pictures of his family, posted pictures of his kids, he's mountain biking. Now, his Facebook feed is just sledging the Republicans. He's grown political teeth. He's angry and his posts are full of expletives and all sorts of things. It's like it's changed him. He's become an activist, an animal. This shouldn't surprise us, given the society that we live in, which can only be classified as a secular one. What's that mean? Secularism is a cultural framework that works against believing. It undermines faith, it undermines supernatural belief. Because of that, Western civilization is now built around doubt and questioning rather than belief. The theologian Peter Berger said that Western culture is now set up to make you doubt. In 1500 AD, it was virtually impossible not to believe in God. Now, since the year 2000, it's virtually impossible not to live a life that is wracked with doubt and confusion. The upshot of this in terms of elections is that people have moved their hope from God to having the right political party in power. That will give me hope. That will give me a better life. And when the right political party doesn't get in, they're angry because they think they can't have a good life. But So they put their... their their faith in politics, but other things. They seem to think that other things hold their future, not only political parties. They put their faith in nationalism, success, education, conservation, and and other things. But hopelessness such as this is almost to be expected. It was only a matter of time before a life without meaning lets you down. Secular society is breaking down. Its pillars are being eroded. We see politics shaky. We see Hollywood shaky, the entertainment industry. We see other things, business falling down around us. There's, there's, there's a reason for people to be nervous. And people are actually trying to convince themselves that they have meaning in their lives, one selfie at a time. But... These cultural flashpoints, they may be something else. They may be actually a desire in people for a different life, a different lifestyle. Maybe, maybe a turning is on the way. 
Maybe it's just down the track. When people get dissatisfied with life, with how it's going, with how they, things that they put their faith in start to crumble, they inevitably turn to the spiritual. They turn to God. And this is probably happening around us. A novelist called Julian Barnes writes a lot of his books about death. And his novel on mortality, Nothing to be Frightened of, he started off with the line, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. Process that. And isn't that a picture of culture today? People want what God, they don't want God, but they want what he brings. They want what he brings, they don't want him. Western culture thinks that we've moved on from the narrative of the Bible, where the Easter story, where dead messiahs come back from the grave after three days. They, they don't believe that. We have, we have science, we have Wikipedia, we know better. Or so it seems. But our world is haunted by the memory of another story. It's a different story. It's a victorious story. And it falls to us to be the keepers of that story in the corrosive soil of the culture that we live in. That's what it is. That's, it's, our pro, it's our domain. Maybe instead of thinking, if I can use a hackneyed old cliche that the world is going to hell in a handbasket, maybe God is moving history towards his own ends. Can we consider that? With that in front of us, I'd, I'd like us to consider this morning a warning from St. Paul to the church of the Colossians. And we're going to look at one verse from Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, and it says this, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends upon human tradition, and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. See, Paul is giving a warning to people who are already Christians that it's possible to get, be held captive by forces, human and spiritual. So let's follow that up with another reading and a breakdown of this opposition that we face. It's, it's a description of the enemies that we will encounter on day to day. To day. The enemy is sitting at the gate. So let's go to Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to read verse 1 to 6. It says this, As for you, you were dead in your transgression and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. And verse 6, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Put simply, summarizing that verse, those first few verses, in one sentence, deceptive ideas, the devil, that play to disordered desires, the flesh, which are normalized in a sinful society, the world. That summarizes that the world, the flesh, and the devil, they form a triumvirate that is bent on the ruin of our souls. I use the word triumvirate, not to use a big word, but because it describes perfectly the enemy that we face. Triumvirate means a government, in this case an evil government, 
of three that functions jointly. These three elemental spiritual forces of this world all work together against us. So what we have here is an enemy at the gate. So let's dissect this evil axis and see what they're all about, see what we can come up with. What I want you to consider this morning is where you are in the process of becoming like Jesus because that's what it will all boil down to in the end. Much of what our generation calls culture, previous generations called the world. The Pulitzer Prize winning novel in 2012 was a book called The Swerve. It was written by a guy called Stephen Greenblatt, who is the professor of humanities at Harvard. It's an interesting book. It's sort of like a a detective story about about an Italian Vatican official in the 1400s. He went by the unlikely name of Poggio Bracciolini. Bit of Italian for you. There you go. Yeah. And, and this guy, was he, was he was actually not a believer in God, but he was secretary to Pope John XXIII. And there was actually at, at this time in history two popes. And so the Vatican Council had to meet and decide who was the actual pope. And Poggio's boss lost his job. And, and so Poggio lost his job as, as a result. But Poggio had a greater love than the church. He didn't really love the church. It was just a job to him. But he had a greater love, and it was books. And so he went on a trip around Europe, scouring monasteries and other, other uh, libraries for ancient manuscripts. And it happened that in 1417, in the German city of Baden, that he came across this ancient manuscript. It was called De Rerum Natura. I've been practicing my Latin as well, okay? which means the nature of the universe. And, and he, he found this ancient manuscript, and it was by a Roman poet called Lucretius. Lucretius lived, like died actually, 55 years before Jesus was born. So he's, a, he's an ancient poet. And Lucretius was an Epicurean. Basically, in a nutshell, what that means is that if there is a God, he's distant, he's not interested, Let's just do what we want to do. Wine, women and song, let's all go for it. That sort of thing. That's, that's an Epicurean. That's, that was what Lucretius believed. And according to this book, The Swerve, the rerum natura is one of the main reasons modern Western culture, culture liberated itself from centuries of medieval religious dogmatism. What happened is Poggio found this book. He sends it to his friend in Florence, who makes copies, he distributes it, and it ends up being published, and it's released to do its evil magic in Western culture. And in other words, the world became modern when it started believing an anti-God sort of doctrine. That's what, that's what the world thinks. That, well, that is the world. And, uh, and so Stephen Greenblatt uses this image of a swerve to say that society was headed in one direction, a, a narrow, conservative direction, and then all of a sudden, this book is released and it starts moving on this liberal, progressive deviation. It takes a swerve away from where it was going. And, and the upshot of it was that human beings should not fear death for the short time that they are on earth. It's party, party, party. And under this mode of thinking, a lot of anti-God ideas have emerged and are emerging. 
This, this, this poem, the Rerum Natura, didn't create Charles Darwin, but it made him possible. See, secular culture, as we know it now, seeks to create a value-free sense of self, one that is not linked to any form of truth outside the individual, to redefine good and evil for the benefit of the individual at the expense of those around in spite of ramifications, and then to build narratives in support of this to make it seem like the natural thing to do. Some recent ones that you might recognise, the self-esteem movement of the 80s. You might be familiar with this, where self-esteem in kids became the main driving force in a lot of education facilities. The idea that the the kid shouldn't have a bad experience or it might affect his self-esteem. And so what happens is the self-esteem movement takes on its own energy and we end up with people saying that they are special and chanting that mantra, but it's not linked to any background story. It's just, I'm special, so things should be made good for me. I shouldn't have bad experiences. See, what started out as a good thing, self-esteem in kids is good, has ended up as a thing that is sort of, you know, really actually creating problems for people. The second thing is political correctness, which came in a bit later, which started out as a a kind of a social justice movement. But now people see political correctness as dislocated from social justice and just actually about really all about being controlled by political activists. People, uh, political activists want to control people through, so, through um, political correctness and give their view of the world. Another thing is the movement for violence against women, and we all say amen to that. We don't want violence against women. And at the moment, in Australia, Australia is the safest country for women to live in anywhere in the world at any time in history. That's been achieved. That was, that was great. That's great. But, but watch for it to go beyond that, where it starts to become dark and sinister. That's, that's the way the world works. Takes things that, that are on the surface good, but then they get to a point where they turn and they become destructive. You remember the phraseology of recent years, don't judge me. You know, don't judge me. And, it, and you know, it's good that we don't be judgmental. But when you don't judge someone for stealing, and that they, what happens is judging someone for stealing becomes the bigger sin than actual stealing, which is mixed up, isn't it? But it can't last. This world, current world system that we are in can't last. If you read Genesis chapter 11, you'll understand that when, when man set themselves up as God and built an edifice called the Tower of Babel to actually be like God and and create the rules, that God built in a kill switch and it all came tumbling down. So when when that happens, when when humanist uh, ideas start to get on top, after, after a certain time, the kill switch kicks in and it all falls apart. And that's what I mean. There's going to be a turning There's going to be a turning as secular society crumbles. The next thing is the flesh. 
the, the verse we read is, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. St. Paul called the flesh sinful passions. Peter, the Apostle Peter, called it corrupt desire. Let me give you a few definitions so that we can sort of define what the flesh actually is. It's not our skin. It's not that. It's something more sinister. Timothy George, a New Testament scholar, I looked this up, he says, it's the fallen human nature, the centre of human pride and self-willing, the part of your life that is bent in rebellion against God's rule and reign in your life. The flesh is the ultimate arena of indulgence and self-assertion, the locale in which the ultimate sin reveals itself to be the false assumption of receiving life, not as a gift of the Creator, but by curing it from one's own power, living from oneself rather than God. The New International Version, which many of you read, originally translated this word flesh as sinful nature, but there was criticism and they re-untranslated it back to the flesh. John Mark Comer, a pastor from America, says it's the base animalistic drives within us for self-gratification, especially as it pertains to sex and food, pleasure in general, as well as survival, power over others and fear. But Henry Thoreau, the American philosopher, describes it like this, and this is really a, a really good description. He says, we are conscious of this animal inside of us. It is reptile and sensual and perhaps cannot be wholly dispelled. He describes the flesh, the, the, the rampant desires that would seem to want to control us. Right across the spectrum, we all have an understanding of this hierarchy of desires in our minds and bodies that we have to actually self-edit. And we need to know that our strongest desires are not always our deepest desires. You'll know in the moment of temptation, the only desire that you'll feel is the desire to sin, to gossip, to belittle someone, to tear someone down to make yourself feel better, to buy some article that you don't actually need to objectify that person of the opposite sex or to smack that guy in the mouth, and so it goes. The only temptation you will feel in that moment is the temptation to do that. But when you step out of that moment and you're alone with yourself and God, with your best self, you'll find that that's actually not your deepest desire. It's a desire in a moment. Under the surface-level chaos that goes on, our deepest desire is actually to honour God and to live a life that's pleasing to him and to honour other people, to live in his delight. But we know that isn't always how it works out. That is the flesh. The third one is the devil, the adversary, the accuser, the Satan, and all titles of a fallen angel or spirit who is violently opposed to God and therefore us, and he is hell-bent, excuse the pun, on our ruin. But he is a defeated enemy. The Bible tells us in Colossians 2.15 that Jesus, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. He has, Satan has no power except that which we give him. Do you understand that? We give him by imagining him to be powerful. Because of that, he has to use our own energy against that. 
Let me give you an example of this. We've all heard of the, the Russian Premier, Vladimir Putin. Vladimir Putin is a, uh, the leader of a country that was once a huge military power with a great land area and great manpower at its disposal. Now it's not so much, it's just Russia, which is still fairly big, but not as powerful as it was. Vladimir Putin is a eight, black belt, eighth dan, judo exponent, right? So he understands judo. And what are the principles of judo? The principles of judo are using the force of your opponent against them, using their energy to get on top of them. And so he applies this, and, and many of his cabinet are members of his judo dojo, in all sorts of languages this morning, aren't we? And many of his cabinet, and they follow the same principles. So Russia, as a, a, an opponent of the West, uses this idea of soft power against the West. It's not, it's not a battle. It's not a battle fought with tanks and guns and, and missiles. It's a, it's a battle fought using soft power, using ideas using suggestions. So let me carry on with the example. In Texas, in a Texas factory, two groups rose up. One was a pro-Islamic group. The other was an anti-Islamic group. And they proceeded to battle it out with each other. Both of these groups were started in Moscow, started by Vladimir Putin's henchmen. And what happened was these two groups ended up fighting against each other across a street in Texas. What happened was the Russians used the already present racism within the American society to cause a malfunction between these two groups and pit them against each other. Did racism exist before this? Yes. But they just took what was already there and carried it to the extreme and made a flare-up, made a flashpoint. So this is what the enemy's practice is to do. In us, as Christians, we have pillars in our, in our belief system. We have grace and we have truth. What the enemy seeks to do is to take those pillars and push them to extreme. The extreme of truth is legalism. The extreme of grace is liberalism. That's where he wants to push us. If we're biased in one direction, then we're, we're actually a candidate for his games. The elemental spiritual forces want to play with our minds. The, world takes, the, the, the devil takes the same strategy against the individual. Check out, if you will, revivals in history. Revivals that have been a, a source of many people coming to know God, but then have gone off track because the elemental spiritual forces of this world push the revival to one extreme or the other or to both, and it ends up coming down. Now, it happened in the church in the, of the Galatians. Paul writes to them about it and deals with that type of thing. But it can happen in us as individuals. He will take, the devil will take the good things about us, the energy that already exists, and push it to extreme. So that's something to be careful of. I may have painted a scary picture, 
of what we face. But Jesus never intended for us to be at the mercy of these forces. He had a counter-offensive. It's spiritual warfare, but not as we know it. When we say spiritual warfare, some people's minds go to demons at the foot of your bed, stamping your foot, calling the devil names and that sort of thing. It's not that at all. It's a long way from that. It is actually outlined by Jesus at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to read a few verses from that where he says, where he actually outlines what spiritual warfare is without actually saying the words. Matthew chapter 7, 24 to 27, just four verses. It says this, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat the house, beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. And at that moment, Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount leaves the stage, curtain. Just leaves that hanging in the air. You hear my words, don't put them into practice. Your life will fail. Have you ever been in church on a Sunday morning and you've thought, yes, yeah, that's, that's something I really need to change about my life and you've walked out the door with every intention of doing that and yet by Tuesday afternoon, you're back in the same old pattern. You know what I mean, don't you? Your problem isn't knowledge. You know all that you need to know. But information transfer alone is not sufficient for transformation. Because you know something, it's not the same as doing it, which is still not the same as wanting to do it. That's why all of us have a massive gap between what we know and what we actually do. And still another gap between what we do and what we actually want to do. That's because what we love in our hearts has a far greater influence on what we do than what we know in our heads. I have a weakness for a particular fast food. Pastor John is thinking it's pizza, but I have actually a higher level than that. I can't walk past a Wendy's without taking advantage of their meal deal called Shaken Dog. Caramel thick shake and chili dog with cheese, and I'm anybody's. (laughs) My problem isn't that I know all the horror stories of what actually goes into Frankfurt's. It's when I walk past the Wendy's, it's like this. It really is. Chili dogs with cheese. What's my problem? My problem is, although I know it's bad for me, I still just love hot dogs in my heart. So how do we change that? Because that's where we all get stuck. And I have to say, I have no intention of changing that about me. (laughs) It's because we know something in our head, but our heart lags behind. So we have to add the next step in transformation, and that is 
practice. Jesus said, if you hear my words and put them into practice, it's like building your house on a rock and it won't fail. And Jesus just leaves that in the air in a haunting way. Everyone who hears these words. Jesus says that we, we need not only to hear his words, but to put them into practice. And if we don't put them into practice, rain, hail, storm, we're done. You all know someone, don't you? They look like good followers of Jesus. They behaved like one. But they weren't putting his words into practice. They knew all the outward signs, Sunday morning, yeah, brother, that sort of thing. And when things went a bit belly up, they disappeared. Great was their fall. This is a familiar line for Jesus about practice. At the end of Luke chapter 8, he says, My mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. And in John 13, he says, Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. But it wasn't just there. He said it on and on and on. And there are, there are so many others. Teaching has to lead to practice. Spiritual disciplines, reading the Bible, prayer, fasting. That's a popular one, isn't it? Silence and solitude, just coming before God and not asking him for anything, just being with him. Gathering together on Sundays, which is getting a less and less thing for a lot of people. Serving, giving. There are, of course, many others, but there are a few basics. What happens with those practices, although we don't feel it, we don't see it immediately, as we do these things, Christ is formed in us. The Apostle Paul said, I labour till Christ is formed in you. How much are you becoming like Jesus? How much do you put his words into practice? It's not a matter of knowing I should pray. It's a matter of nailing it every day. Gathering together, serving, all of those things form something in you, form some part of Jesus in you. Now you might say, well, this, this sounds a lot like works. It sounds a lot like effort. It sounds a lot like, you know, aren't we saved by grace? Grace isn't opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. So let's just look at one. Let's look at Bible reading. Bible reading. We, you know, people say, oh, you know, I read the Bible and I can't remember what I read last week. You probably can't remember what you had for dinner last week, but it's still doing you good. It's still working in you. On our app and on our website is, is a, a, a perfect way of reading the Bible and journaling what you read. It's actually a more modern form of an ancient practice that started in the 3rd century AD called Lectio Divina, which is a, like a meditative, prayerful reading of the Bible. And, and that's, that's what we encourage, to read the Bible and every day, two chapters, sometimes less, sometimes more, but journal what God is saying to you through then, through that. Now, the Bible is meditative literature. You have to understand that. When you read the Bible one time, it might say something, and then 10 years later, it might, the same words might say something different to you. 
It is meditative literature. It requires a lifetime of reading. You never get to the end of it. It's meditative literature. And it's perfectly designed not to give up all of its secrets in the early stages. That's why it has to be a daily grind, if you will, of getting the scriptures in front of us, doing the other things as well, praying, gathering together, serving, fasting, giving, silence, solitude, all of that. They are forming practices. They form Jesus in us. If we don't take responsibility for forming Jesus in us, the world, the flesh and the devil will form something more sinister in us. So I want to give you three quick things to munch over, maybe. Let's have a look at a verse from Colossians. First of all, you will get invitations from all of those three entities, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Reject those invitations. Colossians 2.20 says, Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules. What are the rules? There are rules in our country. There are rules in every city. Every neighbourhood has rules. Every workplace has rules. Classrooms have rules. Every place has rules. You'll know the rules of your neighbourhood. Not the laws that we live under, but unwritten cultural rules. Some of these in our culture are, you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. You only get one chance with me. They won't miss this. They've got plenty more. See, they are cultural rules. You all know someone who plays by those cultural rules. Maybe you play by them yourself. But they're anti-God rules. They're rules that are rules of this world, of the elemental spiritual forces of this world. But the one we see most, and it's a rule in our city, is it might happen to you tomorrow. It's unthinkable, but it might happen to you before you go home today. Is you will get an invitation to criticise something or someone. Maybe something or someone in this room. Maybe leadership, maybe the way we do things. You'll get an invitation for that to that. Don't pick it up. Don't play by those rules. Why then, if you're now in Christ, do you still play by those rules? When you participate in envy and strife and division, are you not carnal, Paul says? Are you not playing by different rules? The second thing, the first thing is don't play by the rules. First thing, second thing is curate your heart. I've picked this word curate because it has a particular meaning. What does a curator do? A curator prepares a bowling green or a golf course or a cricket pitch. I am an amateur curator. I have curated amateur cricket pitches in my backyard and it takes a lot of work. You start out by soaking the area and then rolling it down flat and then you go through the process of curating. What happens is on a daily basis you get down and you look for blemishes, weeds, which must be ruthlessly dealt with, plucked out. You get down and you look, and then you roll and roll and roll again. And you have to take that type of action with your heart, where you look at it, you get down, and you, you look for weeds. You look for blemishes. 
and you ruthlessly deal with them, pluck them out. Curate your heart. In Hebrews 3.12, it says, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Curate your heart. Third thing, quickly, is <coughs> do a lifestyle inventory, inventory and replace. In Galatians chapter 5, 16 and 17, it tells us that if we feed the flesh, the flesh will grow. If we feed our spirits, our spirits will grow. The way this works is over years and years of practice, practicing the, 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 the disciplines of Jesus, something happens. And it's like, it's like compound interest. It's like you know, compound interest, if you understand anything about investing, it, it's not like it works in the, in the first little while. But then it gets to a point and all of a sudden you see results. So the point is, it's not how much you invest, it's how early you start. It's not how much you practice, but it's how early you start. So the time to start is now. An inventory of your life. Look at, your, look at a week in your life and identify things that you do that are actually sowing to your flesh and replace it with one of the spiritual disciplines. If, if in fact, you find yourself eating too much, watching too much TV, being on Facebook too much, replace it with, say, half an hour of silence and solitude, just being alone with God or Bible reading or one of the other disciplines. Just do that and see what happens. That's something that you can do from tomorrow. It's applicable now. The more we sow to the flesh, the more we make decisions in the moment by moment and start to cultivate habits that give power to sin in our lives, the more we become enslaved to death. But the good news is that when we sow to the Spirit, the more we cultivate the spiritual disciplines, the practices of Jesus, and index our mind towards him, the more we see a flow of the Holy Spirit, a flow in our lives. There's this connection. We hear his voice. We can live in the vine. The practices of Jesus are how we fight off the world, the flesh, and the devil. They are counter habits to offset the habits of our body and minds, and they're also the means by which we access a power beyond us. I'm closing right now. I watched a mini-series, an episode of a mini-series called The Monastery. It was about where, where four guys, English guys, went and lived in a monastery and did whatever the monks did for a period of six weeks. They had 11 worship services a day. They had, they had scripture reading. They had prayer. They had all sorts of devotions going on. And at the end of that time, where you think, if this, this is just mechanical, it's just mechanical, it's just something I'm doing, it's just, you know, I'm doing this every day, but nothing's happening. At the end of that time, one of the young guys who worked in the soft porn industry, he, just, he had an encounter with God just by merely doing the practices. He wasn't a Christian, he had no idea of God, but just by carrying out these daily practices... He had an encounter with God and he said, I can't go back to the way of life that I came from. I just can't do it. And you can watch the video on, on YouTube. It's there, this guy sitting there in the office 
of his spiritual guide and he is wrestling. He's crying, he's wrestling, he just he understands that he can't go back. He's having an encounter with the living God. And at the end of the day, that's what Jesus' spiritual practices do for us. They make us open to having encounters, to hearing God's voice, to living close to the vine, to having his mind in us. And that's what we want, isn't it? The end of the day. Why don't we pray? Why don't we stand together? Thank you for listening to this podcast.